Imagine you had one last opportunity to impart wisdom on someone. You actually get to choose who the person is. Or maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's your church. You have one last opportunity to stand here and you say, here's what I'd like everybody to hear. Maybe it's your son or daughter, a grandchild. Maybe it's your whole family. You get to bring them together. This is your opportunity to say, you know, everything that I've learned in life or everything that is important to me can be summarized in this. I thought about that for myself, and I thought, what is the one thing that I try to teach or say? And I've had people come back and say that they hear it from me over and over, trust God. That's simple, trust God. Why do I say that? Because I know that when I trust God, life is okay, and when I take my will back, it isn't, amen? That's how we are invited to live our lives, to trust God. Lou Gehrig, we... Certainly remember him as a great baseball player. If you're a Yankees fan, which there hopefully are not any in here this morning, if you are, I apologize for offending you. The Iron Man, he had played more games than anyone else consecutively, and then, of course, he came down with ALS. Later gets named Lou Gehrig's disease after him. His body was failing, and he had an opportunity to stand before the fans that he loved at Yankee Stadium, and he uttered these words thanking them. What did he want to say? Today I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And no Yankees fan, in fact, no person who's ever watched a sports team and had a beloved player can hear those words without just hearing the appreciation gifts that God had given to him as well as the support that people had given him. Dwight Eisenhower, as he was leaving the presidency, gave his final address to our nation. He warned us about having a, and I quote, military-industrial complex. Many wish that those words had been taken more seriously as we continue to see so much harm that's done in this world. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the the day before, he, his life was taken from him in Memphis. Didn't know what was going to happen the next day, but he gave a speech which was his final speech, and he said, I've been to the mountaintop, and I've seen the promised land, and I know what lies ahead and what can happen. I may not get there with you, is how he put it. He took words that really came from the text that we're looking at today. He went right back and he quoted from Moses. Because that's the same thing that Moses says as you get to the end of Deuteronomy, that Moses has led the children of Israel for all this period of time. What amazing opportunity he has had. We come in our Bible readings now to the end of Deuteronomy as we end the first five books of the Bible. Penta means five, so it's a Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And now, as he's at the end of his life, looking back at all that he has done, his life as Pharaoh was trying to kill all the Hebrew children, he was put in a basket and sent down a river. He was raised in Pharaoh's household, and his mother got to wean him and take care of him. He then finds out that he is a Hebrew, and what he does is he flees, only to have God speak to him, to say to him, I am. I am God. You can trust me. 
and now go back and set my people free. And he traveled back to Egypt. And of course it was there. He listened to what God said to him. And he went back to Pharaoh, telling Pharaoh to let the people go. And there was a series of plagues that came on and persecutions to him and the children of Israel until finally Pharaoh let them go and he got them through the Red Sea. What an amazing story. If it had ended there, what a life he would have lived but of course, he got them all the way to the promised land. They got to the Jordan River. They looked across. Spies were sent in. And only two of the spies came back and said, God will be with us and we can take the land. And the people listened to everyone else. And so they wandered for 40 years. And now during that 40 years, Moses continued to lead them. In their time in the wilderness, he had received the law. He had received Scripture. The first five books of the Bible. He also saw a vision of the tabernacle and laid out the plans for what the tabernacle could look like. What an amazing life he's lived. And now when we get to the end of Deuteronomy, and in particular one of the texts that we read this morning, we hear him giving his farewell speech. It's a much longer speech than what we're going to look at. But I'd like to look at part of what he said, and it got me thinking as I was thinking about that, not just about his final words, but some other great final words in Scripture. It's actually a thing in the Bible. There's lots of last speeches that people give, last instructions, and rather than ending with Moses, we're actually going to end with Jesus. But I'd like us to hear not just what would you say to someone, but what do these great words of Scripture say to us? When somebody takes all of this life experience, everything that they have, and they put it together and they say, hear this one thing. Sort of like if I had, I always put it in the past tense. If I had been hit by a bus last night and I wasn't here this morning and somebody wanted to summarize Pastor Stan, I hope they would get up and say, Pastor Stan told us to always trust God. Now we get to hear from Moses and from Joshua and from Jesus what they tell us. What is that final thing? Moses' words, I believe, can come down to this. Do not be afraid. The Lord goes before us. Amen? Amen. We don't need more than that. Goodbye. Church is over. <laughs> Do not be afraid. The Lord goes before us. Moses says in chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, verse 1, I am now 120 years old. Wow, he'd lived quite a life. I did a funeral for a woman who was 104. We knew somebody else who lived to be about 108, 109. When the woman who was 104 passed away and I did her funeral, I had two women in the church who were 101. And one of them said to me, you know, Pastor Stan, I'm now your oldest member. While the other one said, you know, Pastor Stan, I've been a member of this church longer than anyone else. They both had bragging rights. <laughs> That's what comes with old age. That's what... Moses has. I'm no longer able to lead you, he said. Then verse 7, he called Joshua as well as all of Israel watched and he said these words, be strong and courageous. Then verse 8, do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. Let's not miss the fact that 365 times the Bible tells us do not be afraid. Amen? Over and over and over. I had somebody who came to worship last night for the first time. person loved the service and we talked afterwards and the person said to me, I needed to hear that. 
that the Bible keeps saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Over and over and over, Scripture keeps saying that. Why? Because we get fearful. We take our will back. We start thinking we have to do it ourselves. We call it overthinking it. You see, fear is a negative force. It's not a positive motivator in our life. If we go through life being afraid of things, we become like the kid who's constantly afraid that mom and dad are going to correct them, and that's not a healthy way to live. We live with God guiding us into the future. That's why when the spies were sent into the promised land and Joshua and Caleb came and said, God's going to be with us, don't be afraid, and the people didn't listen to them but listened to everyone else, they wandered for 40 years. Hear me? If you let fear dominate your life, if you go out of this sanctuary and you say, Pastor Stan doesn't get it, I have all these things I'm afraid of, the Bible gives you a wonderful promise. You will wander. Hear that? You'll wander. That's what we do when we just let fear grip us. And so this wonderful, elderly, wise gentleman said, don't be afraid. The Lord goes before you. It's funny how easy it is to start being afraid. Regina and I, when we were first married, after one year, we got our first dog. We always say dogs brought us together because we both loved dogs growing up and had done a lot of stuff, had rescued two dogs, I believe, when we were in college. And, and it was just something that we both cared about. And so we got our first dog, and she's a cute little ass apsel. Weighed about 11 pounds. That's before she got her hair cut. After her, I wanted a bigger dog. I wanted a boxer. And my aunt had had a boxer. Regina had never had a boxer before. Now, if you know anything about boxers, they can look pretty intimidating. And I still remember the day that the dog, it was probably a year, year and a half old, so it looked like a full-grown boxer. Dog growled and barked at Regina, and she was terrified. And I said, honey, what's wrong? She goes, the dog seems mean. I said, Sal? Sal is a marshmallow. I mean, this is a pushover of a dog. You got to understand, our Sal, we later discovered with our special needs niece, she could take her fingers and stick them in Sal's eyes, and Sal didn't care. This was the most gentle dog I've ever seen. Regina started to realize that, and then every time the dog would start to bark or growl because it was just an expression, Regina would say, oh, stop it. Don't be afraid. Say, oh, stop it. Hear the difference? Today we have another boxer. Her name is Elsa. I've said to Regina, are you afraid of her? She goes, no, she's a boxer. She's a marshmallow. And when Sal decides to go, Regina goes, oh, stop it. Ruby, my granddaughter, says, oh, stop it. <laughs> when you get afraid, God goes before you. Say these words. Oh, stop it. Hear me? Stop it. That's not how God wants us to live our lives. The Lord will personally go before you. Hear that? That's a promise for you. That's a promise for me. The things that concern us, the things that we are afraid of, God is going before us. We have nothing to be afraid. And a lot of times that, oh, stop it, just comes back to ourselves. I had a wonderful opportunity to go down to Asbury. And I promise we'll be hearing some stories 
we took a difficult church vote and I wanted to have a break and so I talked to some young people and it ended up being Ezekiah and Austin and myself. We got in the car, we drove 15 hours to get down to Asbury. First night we were there, I said I couldn't go into the main auditorium because it was for people 16 to 25. I told them I was 23, they let me in. That's not true. <laughs> I said, well, I drove some young people down. They said, fine, we'll let you in the first night. So they let me sit in the back of the sanctuary, and it was awesome. It was wonderful. And then I was told I got to go to the old people's place. That was for everybody who was over 25. And that was a number of different chapels because all the chapels were full. You saw pictures of young people, 16 to 25, 1,500 at a time in Hughes Auditorium. The rest of us were in all these other chapels around, and most of my time I spent in Estes Chapel because I volunteered to be on the prayer team and they trained me for for what they wanted to happen and I was overwhelmed as it was just constant people coming back for prayer the first day that I was on prayer team I got 10 o'clock at night so now we had driven a long time I was tired and at 10 o'clock at night I got to pray with people from 10 till midnight and lo and behold only God would do this they had somebody get up and gave a, a short little talk about being a pastor in recovery who had just come through about four years of being sober. And I thought, this is great, God. This is going to wear me out as constantly people were coming forward for prayer, needing to get their life together, needing to confess things, needing to move off. I was exhausted. I was tired when it was all over. The next day, I was going to go back on prayer team and I went in and I checked in and they said, you did 10 o'clock last night, could you do it again? I said, actually, we're leaving at 5 morning, could I have an earlier slot? So they let me be on prayer team from 7.30 till 10. And I got myself prepared that, okay, this is going to be another intense moment. And somebody got up and gave a talk on finding Sabbath rest in our life. Just learning to trust God. And day two was amazing, the prayers. Because it was all prayers of people who knew that God was going before them and they were using this as an opportunity to declare that and have somebody declare it with them. I had a couple. They'd been married 49 years. They came forward and we were told, don't make an assumption, listen to them. Of course, I made an assumption. Oh my goodness, they must have some horrible health thing that's happened. And I asked them their names. I said, can I pray for you? They said, Yes, we've been married 49 years, 50 years on Good Friday. That's our anniversary. God is faithful. I'm a pastor. This is my wife. We've been serving in upstate New York. We just wanted somebody to pray with us as we declare that God has been faithful and will continue to be faithful into the future. Amen. Amen. God goes before us. And then a young couple came forward. I could tell that they weren't from North Dakota. They had a heavy accent. I asked them where they were from. They were from Kenya. God had directed them to the U.S. because God wanted them to start a Baptist church in Colorado. And they knew that God was going before them. And they simply said, we want this to be a place where we declare with someone else that God is faithful and he's sending us there and things will go well. And we had an awesome prayer as a Methodist pastor prayed for a Baptist church. Folks, do not be afraid. The Lord goes before you. Pray that not God will go before you, but that you will see it. 
That's what Moses was saying. He gives warnings in that text. If you go back and read it or listen to Pastor David, read it on Spotify, and you'll hear all the warnings of what happens when you don't trust. But that's not the point. The point is trust and know there's nothing to be afraid, for God goes before you. The person who's there listening to Moses is Joshua. The text is clear. He's speaking to Joshua, and everybody else is bearing witness to that. And so, as you go to the book of Joshua, you get a whole other story of now Moses and that first generation is all gone, and Joshua leads the people to take in the land that they have been promised, and they start to settle the land, and amazing, miraculous things happen until finally you get to chapter 24, and you come to the end of Joshua's life. And now, just as Moses has breathed wisdom into him, Joshua's going to do the same. You see, no matter what somebody's ever spoken to us, we still have that opportunity to make those statements to others. Amen? Amen. You may have people in your life, you said, wow, that's great, Pastor. Santa got me thinking of something my dad told me always to carry with me, or my mom told me, or a Sunday school teacher. But now it becomes our opportunity to share that wisdom with others. Joshua knew how fickle the people are. He'd seen it. The good times and the bad times, he knew about himself also. And so as he spoke, he literally did an object lesson. Remember Pastor David last summer baking a Sunday or something up here with hamburger buns and stuff? Well, that's kind of what Joshua does. He doesn't just give a message, he gives an object lesson. And so we're told in verse 25 that Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. Verse 26, he took a huge stone and put it beneath a tree. This stone, he said, has heard everything the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness and testify against you if you go back on your word to God. A stone. A stone. He stuck a stone there. A monument. He made a covenant, a formal covenant. Now, what a covenant is, the word for covenant is the word cut. And people get confused about that. But think about Old Testament covenants. When a covenant, it's like a contract was made between people. They didn't have a court system, and they didn't get everything tied up in litigation. So they wanted to literally know that when two people were making an agreement, that they were going to hold to it. And so they would go to the priest, and they would come to an altar, and they would put something on the altar, an animal, and they would sacrifice the animal in front of people. And people were literally saying, if we don't follow what we say we're going to do, may the same thing happen to us as is happening to this animal. So they would cut a covenant. It starts making sense what happens in the scripture in the ancient world. And so we don't know specifically what the covenant was, but it seems to be an agreement that everybody made that day that we will listen to God's word and we will follow it alone. Amen? I didn't get a loud enough amen on that. We will follow God's word. That's what it became about. And if anyone violates it, they were declaring themselves, may awful things happen to us. But there's a problem with that. Remember what we said about fear? Fear doesn't motivate us, folks. Fear does not motivate us. And it didn't motivate the people them. Therefore, doing a covenant and making an agreement and everybody seeing something awful happen as an animal died and was sacrificed, Joshua always know, also knew 
that fear would not be a motivator and they would not go out of there until five minutes would, would pass by and they would justify everything in their own mind because that's what we do. Let me illustrate. You drive down the road. Now, not you, but somebody in your family because this doesn't apply to any of us here. And we know we're not supposed to text and drive. Amen? We know it. And we do. But nobody's watching. But our car goes off the road and it hits the little curb. And we all of a sudden start. We're like, oh no. And a moment of fear hits us. And at that moment, we say, I am never going to text and drive again. And we set that phone down. And 45 minutes later, we text and drive. Not us. But it happens, folks. We can be honest. And it's not only with that, it's with everything in our life. Fear is not the motivator. You have a friend or a family member who you've been praying for, and they're making wrong choices time after time after time. And you pray, Lord, may they just finally get it. And something awful happens in their life. Something takes place in which at that moment you see what they do and how bad it goes. And you say to yourself, I hope and pray this finally teaches them a lesson. And it doesn't. Fear is not a motivator. Hear me loud and clear. It's wrong to text and drive. Hear that? It's wrong. But having a bad experience doesn't change a person from doing it. It's a commitment of our will to make a change. It's a commitment in our will to make a change and live for God. A person having a bad experience in their life is not going to be the motivator that's going to change them. It still becomes a motivation in our life to turn our life and our will over to God. And therefore, we need not only a covenant, we need a reminder. And that's what Joshua did. He took a stone and he stuck it before them. And what he told them is every time you see that stone, you're going to remember the covenant you made. Every time we see that object, we are reminded that God has asked us to live better. When we were in Asbury, I had Azekai and Austin and myself meet with a professor that I knew there, Jason Vickers. I didn't realize when we set up this meeting with him, I knew he was a, a professor of theology, and I knew I had taken classes from him in the past, and I knew he could put a lot of perspective on revivals and awakenings and everything was happening. I didn't know that he was taking another job, and this summer he's moving to Baylor. So I was doubly blessed because it was the last opportunity to talk to him also as somebody who I have deep respect for, unless I go to Baylor, which I'm not planning to do, and I have no trips to Texas planned in the future. And Jason shared with us, he said, you know, as I read scripture, God has two ways of dealing with people. One is in emotional important things that happen, like this outpouring that's happening here, these moments where we know that God is with us. He said the prophets do that in the Old Testament. They speak the word of the Lord at, every, at these moments. And he said there's all kinds of them. People go to a retreat and they have an experience with God. They come to an altar call. They have an experience with God. That's an important part of the faith. Has been forever. But he said there's a second part that's also important and we lose it 
And that's the scripture. That's the mundane. That's the stuff we just do time after time, week after week. He said, that's like going to church. He said, you go to church and you want a great experience every week, you're not going to have it. Sometimes you're just going to say, I just went to church one more week. He said, you read your devotions every day or your Bible every day, and you're like, Lord, let me have a breakthrough today. And you just read the scripture every day. He said, they become things that become symbols that we look at that also keep us grounded. So what Joshua is doing here is he's putting a stone, not so people have some big emotional experience, but to remind us to be faithful. Because in order to live for God, not only do we need to not be afraid and know the Lord goes before us, but we need to trust the scriptures and we need to have things in our life to remind us to do it. Because we are a wandering people. Our minds wander. Our lives wander. And God gives us things in our life to keep us grounded. Now, the people of Plymouth should know that better than anyone else, not only because we have... Plymouth Patuxet, not only because we have the Mayflower too. We have the Forefathers Monument in this town. Built in 1888, well, it was finished and, and dedicated in 1888, with a woman looking towards England who's holding a Bible whose name is Faith. Get it? Holding a Bible and her name is Faith. And around her on each of the panels are something for morality, law, education, and liberty. And if people don't get it yet that this is a monument to remind us to live faithfully, all you have to do is read the words on the front of the monument, which says, erected by a grateful people in remembrance of their labors, sacrifices, and sufferings for the cause of civil and religious liberty. I love seeing the Forefathers Monument, but I don't get pins and needles when I see it. I don't have an emotional experience, but it grounds me as I look at it and I say, people for almost 200 years now in this town have said, we need something to remind us to stay faithful, and they put faith on the top. Amen? Amen. And that's what we're asked to do in our lives. To not only trust God, not only trust the scriptures, but find the things that remind us. What do you have in your life to remind you? What are the things that you hold on to? Or maybe it's a plaque you put on your wall. Maybe it's something you put in your car. Maybe it's turning on K-Love every day. What are the things that ground, ground us to keep us faithful, to realize that God goes before us? With our children's ministry, they're all making these cute little people. I said to Megan, make sure that they all take them and show their parents because we're going to talk about them to remind the kids to be faithful. These represent the family of the children of Israel, but they also remind all of us to see something like this and say, just like they needed to be faithful, I need to learn to be faithful. Just a little symbol for kids to take home, to say that I am grounded, I trust and no matter what comes in my life, I know that God goes before me. When my son Todd was going to first grade, he had a really tough time going to school. And I know other parents have had the same thing where he just didn't want to go. He was afraid. Now, we used to chuckle about it because the school was two doors from our house. 
We literally could look out from the playground and see the steeple of the church where his dad was a pastor. But it didn't matter. He had a hard time going to school. And one day I walked him over to school. Sometimes Regina would walk him. Sometimes I would. Get it? You didn't have to drive. You walked a couple blocks, I mean a couple houses, and there the school was. And I saw a triangle in the cement. And for some reason God spoke to me. And I said, David, Todd, that triangle is going to be a symbol of the faithfulness of your parents. I said, I am going to stand here on this triangle, and you're going to walk into school. And when you get into school, he's a first grader. I said, when you get into school, from up in your classroom, you can look down, you can see the triangle, and you will know that when you come out of school, a parent will be standing on that triangle. The last thing you'll see is a parent on the triangle. The first thing you'll see is a parent on the triangle. Sometimes he'd go, and he'd open the door, and he'd look back out, and we'd be there until we knew he was gone. I remember one day Regina took him to school and didn't stand on the triangle. He's like, Mommy, you got to be on the triangle. And we stood there on the triangle. As an adult, he and I have twice taken pilgrimages to Whitensville, Massachusetts to look at the triangle. We need those symbols, folks, in our lives. You need something in your life, not just to have an emotional experience with God. Those are important. Not just to know that God's transforming your life, but listen to Joshua. What do you have that you do, that you see, that is consistent, that reminds you to stay faithful to the covenant? Jesus gave his life for you. God's done all that he can do. Maybe it's a cross. Maybe it's jewelry. Maybe it's cut out people. Maybe it's a stone. But in order for us to learn to be faithful, let's remember it is not fear that motivates us. However, when we learn to do one step after another and learn to stay faithful, little by slow, God changes us and transforms us into the people God wants us to be. And we come to the end, to Jesus, who's given his life for the world who suffered the rejection of his friends, the humiliation of the cross, has had victory over death. And now what do the disciples want? They want to hold on to him. That's what they want. What are the first thing that Mary does? She grabs onto him. And he says, woman, do not hold me. That becomes the whole end of the story of Jesus I want to hold on, and I want to go back, and I want to have things how they were. But Jesus knew he was going to ascend to heaven, and he was going to be gone, and the Spirit was going to be here to guide us and lead us, and now he had his final words. And he said these words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And we repeat those words over and over. Go out and make disciples and teach people the scriptures and help people be baptized and and bring them to your church and all of those things, but we miss his final words. For I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen? I am with you always, Jesus says, even to the end of the age. What are the words? The words of Moses are, don't be afraid. The Lord goes before you. What are the words of Joshua? Trust the scripture and find something in your life to be a concrete remembrance that God is with you. And what are the words of Jesus? You will never, ever be alone. Jesus didn't promise that you'd never have something tough in your life, nor would I. Jesus didn't promise that 
you give your life to Jesus and everything is going to magically change around you. And your pastor will not promise you that either. But after the resurrection, when he knew that they were going to feel alone and they were going to have moments where they felt as if they had been deserted, he wanted them to know he was with them. No matter what, he was with them. I told on Todd, I'll tell on David. When David was a little kid and he struggled going away from his mom and dad, Regina had something she did for him. She gave him hugs to put in his pocket. Gave him a bunch of hugs and she said, put them in your pocket, honey. And when you're struggling, get a hug from mommy. The other day, our little Ruby granddaughter was having a hard time because her mom was going off to work and she wanted to go with her. It's kind of tough when you're a three-year-old. You can't go to work with mom. And Grandma Regina said the same thing. Honey, let's put your hugs in your mom's pocket and you'll be with her. Now, we know that with kids, that's just kind of symbolism but reminds them that they're loved as they can hold their hands in their pocket and go, my mommy, put a hug in here. Jesus did better than that for you folks. He is with you. No matter what you face, your Savior is with you. No matter what you go through or what words get said against you or how discouraging life can be at any moment, Jesus is with you. That's the promise that he's given us. Yes, he's got work for us to do. Yes, we need to make disciples. Yes, we need to share the gospel. Yes, we need to work for the transformation of the world. But Jesus is with us. We have nothing to be afraid. And yes, we need the symbols. They're important. So if you came to worship today and it was a really boring service, praise God for that because it becomes a symbol in your life of staying faithful to God. And if we invite you for communion and you're just hoping the Holy Spirit's going to show up and you go, it was just communion, it was just a bread and a wafer, praise God because that stone was still just a stone. And the Lord understands. Because everything is not, wow, I was amazed at what God did for me today. That is important. And that happens in all of our lives. And I've certainly had a lot of those moments recently. And I can share a lot of them. But as my friend Jason Vickers says, it's also important to get back to things like the stone. And realize that faithfulness and just learning to stay faithful is an essential part of being a Christian. That's why when you came in today, we gave you communion elements. That's what these are. These are elements that we share together. Because Jesus himself, on that last night, when he was with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it. Just common, everyday, ordinary bread. And he broke it. And he said, you're not going to see this bread the same way ever again. This bread is going to remind you of my body, which was broken for you. And then the Bible tells us that when the, cup, the supper was over, Jesus took a cup and he explained that this is a new covenant. And they knew the covenant because they had seen his body literally riddled on the cross. They knew what had happened. And he said, this represents my blood that was shed for you. So every single time you take this bread and you take this cup, you remember. 
You remember that I died for you and that I will come again. These are not just symbols, folks. These are the very presence of God in our lives. Let us take this bread and be thankful. And let us receive the cup, knowing that Jesus loved you and loved me and gave everything for us. And may this not just be juice that we take, may it be something to ground, uh, ground us that we would know that God is with us, goes before us, and whatever we face, Jesus is our Savior who's with us through it all. When I was at Asbury, many people came forward for prayer. It just became that people just understood they could just come forward for prayer. I saw one woman come for prayer five times in a row. Came for prayer and went back down and came back up and went back down and came back up and I counted five times a woman came for prayer. It's a good thing to do, folks. It keeps us grounded. If we could have members of our elder team please come forward. If you just simply today need somebody to pray with you, maybe you got something you're afraid of. Maybe you need to know that Jesus is with you. Maybe you need to find something that keeps you grounded. Maybe you're struggling with something in your life and you just need to be able to stand up in front of a congregation and say, folks, I'm struggling. I need prayer. I invite you during our last song and as the service ends to please come forward and let us pray with you. Let us sing together. <laughs>